from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. Uh, as we get started, I want to remind you that you can download the Stand Firm app on the App Store or at Google Play to f- make sure that you get all the information, including Washington Watch, directly to your phone. Uh, Anytime the FRC has news for you. In addition to that, uh, you can find the program at TonyPerkins.com. Also, you can find uh, Tony on Gab at Tony underscore Perkins. Encourage you to do so on the program today. Uh, we are going to talk about, uh, we're going to, there's a story out of Alabama because of college students who are trying to not get vaccinated over because of the religious objections. Is that uh, constitutional for a university to force a student to do so. Also, what percentage of millennials don't believe, don't know, or don't care if God exists? We're going to discuss that with George Barna. At the end of the program, we are going to talk about whether it is wrong for Christians to judge other people in our worldview segment with David Clausen. But to start off the program, The state of Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire that went into effect early Friday after 11 days of conflict. Over that time, more than 4,300 rockets were fired from Gaza at Israel. Israel, in defense, responded by hitting some 1,500 targets in Gaza. Speaking at a press conference, hours after the ceasefire commenced, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said Israel has changed the equation with Hamas adding that not all the information is yet available to the public. Netanyahu went on to say that Israel would respond forcefully in the event that any rocket fire on Israel communities bordering the Gaza Strip. Well, with me now to talk about the ceasefire, the events leading to it, and what's ahead is PJ Media Senior Editor Tyler O'Neill, who has been tracking this for all of us. Tyler, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, glad to be here. Well, we are glad to have you, and we hope that you can catch us up on what, what it is that we are watching over there in Israel. Um, what should we make of this ceasefire? Yeah, so I don't have very high hopes for the ceasefire. I think uh, it didn't address the central issue at hand, which is Hamas's willingness to engage in these rocket attacks against Israel, these unprovoked uh, these unprovoked attacks. So the situation on the ground was that Hamas appears to have uh, helped gin up a lot of uh, a lot of riots against Israeli forces, especially one at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. And these were focused on uh, uh, the lawful eviction of squatters who refused to pay rent even after they agreed to acknowledge a Jewish land claim over their homes. So the protesters uh, became a violent mob and attacked the police. The police responded with crowd control measures that injured hundreds, and Hamas seized this opportunity to start firing rockets into Israel. And they fire these rockets without any warnings. They fire them uh, while from civilian areas so that when Israel responds, in order to cut down on Hamas's ability to engage in violent attacks against Israel, uh, Israel essentially has to attack areas where there are a lot of civilians in Gaza. And that creates a really dangerous situation. Also, many of the rockets 
that Hamas has been firing have failed, and many of them fall down and uh, from the sky and actually injure Palestinians themselves. So Hamas has claimed that 230 Palestinians were killed, including 65 children. Um, but many of those might be from Hamas's own rockets. Meanwhile, I believe the number in Israel has risen to 12 people killed uh, tragically in, in the attacks. And that's largely because of the Iron Dome system, uh, which intercepts many of these Hamas rockets before they can hit the ground. Interestingly, Democrats in Congress blocked an amendment to fund uh, more money to the Iron Dome system, which would en enable Israel to continue defending itself. Uh, this, along with Biden's policies, reaching out to uh, Hamas and reaching out specifically to Iran, uh, have really led Hamas to take advantage of the situation and see the tepid support from Israel that uh, the United States government has right now and uh, take, take advantage of that and push for a propaganda win against Israel. And we're seeing a lot of Democrats giving them that opportunity. Yeah, Tyler, there's obviously competing narratives about whose fault it is, who caused it. Uh, and I, I want to first uh, listen a little bit to what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had to say about this, let you respond to this. And then we're going to listen to some of what the uh, domestically the politicians are saying about this as well. But let's go to Netanyahu first. Go ahead and play that clip one. We were fighting terrorists who are hiding among civilians in one of the most densely populated places on Earth. They were firing rockets on our civilians while using their civilians as human shields. We did everything in our power to prevent civilian casualties, unnecessary casualties of non-combatants, while trying to attack the combatants who are trying to murder our citizens. We regret every loss of life, but I can tell you categorically, there is no army in the world that acts in a more moral fashion than the army of Israel. Is that Israeli propaganda, or do you think that's a fair characterization of what's happening there, Tyler? That's a very fair characterization. And I'd like to cite Eugene Kontorovich, who's an Israeli scholar at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. Uh, he explained that international law requires all combatants, Israel and Hamas, to adhere to the principle of distinction, meaning that military and civilian forces have to be separated and clearly marked so that both sides can target each other's military without killing civilians. Mixing the military amongst the civilians and putting military targets, uh, including rocket facilities, in or in proximity to civilian targets itself is a violation of the law of war, and that's what Hamas is doing. Uh, meanwhile, Israel continues to provide warnings before sending, uh, before sending their own rocket attacks to take out Hamas's, uh, Hamas's rocket launching capabilities, and uh, sometimes when they're trying to take out Hamas leaders. Uh, actually, two attacks on one of on Hamas's major military leader failed, but one of the attacks uh, that Israel launched, one of the rockets, uh, did succeed in taking out one of the major terrorist leaders in the region. So this, the situation is, you know, you have Hamas firing rockets that uh, many of which will fall back to earth and harm their own civilians uh, without giving warnings so that Israeli citizens can flee from any uh, military installations Hamas may be targeting versus Israel 
firing rockets at military installations, sending out a warning about an hour, two hours beforehand so that the building can be evacuated so that only the military installation gets hit. And in one of the most brilliant military tactics in this conflict, Israel uh, announced to the media that they were invading uh, Gaza and they, they said attacking it with ground forces. That led the uh, that led the Hamas leaders to the fighters to go through the tunnels to attack Israel. And then Israel attacked the tunnels, which meant that they only killed Hamas leaders and didn't kill any civilians uh, among the Palestinians. So Israel has been uh, staying above board on this issue. And Netanyahu's remarks uh, do follow the uh, the way that both sides have been fighting this conflict. While the U.S. has long been an ally of Israel, not everyone in the United States is on the side of Israel. And Representative Elon Omar had some comments about that this week as well. We want to listen to those and then let you respond to that as well. The Israeli government and their far-right ethno-nationalist leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, has legally raised Palestinian ancestral homes, leveled entire neighborhoods, and violently suppressed any resistance. This is all to make way for illegal Israeli settlement outposts designed to displace Palestinians from their homes and prevent a future Palestinian state. What should we make of the claim that the Israeli government is destroying people's homes without regard for ownership, ancestral rights to that, just because they want to? Yeah, she is echoing Hamas propaganda in that situation. Uh, I did a, a deep dive on uh, the situation um, that she's talking about, where, where they're talking about evictions in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. And what we have is a bunch of Palestinian squatters who were settled there by Jordan after the uh, after Jordan took over large sections of Israel of, of Jerusalem in the 1948 war uh, Jordan lent leased them the land, leased them their houses so they still paid rent to Jordan and then after Israel retook Jerusalem in the 1967 war uh, the Israelis who owned the land originally wanted their land claims uh, recognized. So they're actually, the Israelis and the Palestinian squatters came to an arrangement in the 1980s by which the Palestinian squatters would pay, uh, that they would pay rent in exchange for acknowledging that, the, that their homes were property of these Israeli trusts. And then what ended up happening is they didn't pay the rent that they agreed to pay. And now they're claiming that these this land belongs to them when even the Jordanian government required them to pay rent for it. And so by the time it reaches Ilhan Omar's lips, it's gone through Hamas's uh, propaganda machine. And she's saying that this uh, that this ancestral land is being stolen from these people, when in reality, it's land that the Israeli owners grudgingly allowed the Palestinians to stay there for in exchange for rent that they demanded, but the rent was never paid. So now the Israelis want the land back because the terms of the agreement have been violated, and then they would build a new settlement uh, in place of the homes. So the and one of the reasons why this attack happened was because the Israelis 
Supreme Court was about to rule on this case, and it was certainly going to find in favor of the Israeli uh, land claim and essentially evict these squatters who did not have the legal right to remain in homes that they were that they refused to pay rent for. So the whole situation is a is manufactured, and you're getting the very twisted view of a pro-Palestinian side from Ilhan Omar. Tyler, we have just about a minute left here. What should we make of the, uh, of the fact that this peace was brokered by Egypt? And what's your take on how the Biden administration has responded to really kind of their first Middle East incident? Yeah, I think the major issue is less how they've responded and how they set up the whole situation. So Biden comes in and suggests that all of the progress that Trump had made with the historic Israeli peace deals is going out the window. He has gone toward the Palestinians after these deals essentially cut out the Palestinians who were able to make peace and progress by doing so and by cutting Iran out. So essentially you had under Trump, a reorganization of the Middle East with these Arab Muslim states siding with Israel to push Iran aside. And Biden is essentially throwing all of that out by reaching back to Iran, by reaching back to the Palestinians. And now he's claiming success with the ceasefire that that he didn't orchestrate. And all he did was call for a ceasefire. He has shown no moral backbone in condemning Hamas and instead been issuing these statements of, oh, it's, it's horrible that this conflict is happening. Well, there's Tyler, a clear aggressor. Yeah. I've got to cut you off. We are out of time. Tyler O'Neill, PJ Media, thank you so much for joining us. After the break, vaccines and religious exemptions. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. 
Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Washington Watch, Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Across the country, a growing number of colleges and universities are saying vaccinations will be mandatory in 2021, the fall of 2021. That means hundreds of thousands of students will be required to get the COVID-19 vaccine, whether they want to or not. Can schools legally require vaccination prior to attending classes in person or living on campus? What about medical or religious exemptions? Joining me now to talk about this is First Liberty Institute attorney Keisha Russell, whose organization is representing a student seeking exemptions from her school's mandated vaccine policy. Keisha, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. Now tell us the case that you have in uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us what's happening there. Sure. So student Jackie Gill uh, has been going there for a year. She was um, going into her sophomore year. And the first two semesters, the school accepted her religious exemption to their vaccine mandates for childhood exemptions or vaccines. Mm -hmm. And uh, she put in her religious exemption just like she did last year. Um, and that she did all throughout K through 12 school. This student has never been vaccinated in her life. Um, and that entire time, the school accepted it. In February, they told her, we will not accept your religious vaccine um, exemption. Um, and uh, those exemptions are only good for K through 12 only. Um, and so she asked us to step in and help her. Now, what is the argument that the school is making for why the COVID-19 vaccine is so different than every other vaccine? So I think at the start, so the, the university has just started by saying your childhood vaccines are mandatory. Now, obviously, the conclusion that you would draw from that is now they're doing that because they're getting ready to roll out this mandatory COVID vaccine possibly come the fall. Um, and obviously, since we've gotten involved at First Liberty, the school has now changed their position and, and, and released the hold on Jackie's account. But there's still a lot of, you know, the lack of clarity there about whether the school's really going to allow these religious exemptions um, because their, their website still doesn't say that. Um, and they still have this email out there to her saying, we don't accept these uh, religious exemptions. And so we want to know as soon as all the smoke clears, what are they going to do to all these other yeah. students who might want religious exemptions in the future? I think there's a lot of people thinking through this issue right yes. now. There's a lot of college students who will be returning in the fall who may not want to get the COVID-19 vaccine for a variety of reasons. Right. What does the Constitution say about this issue? Do people have to get it? Okay, so the law really says that states are allowed to mandate vaccines, and that would include the COVID-19 vaccine at some point, right? But 
Uh, in terms of religious liberty and religious expression, if the state allows any other kind of exemption, and that includes a medical exemption, then the state or government must also allow religious exemptions. They, mu they must receive those. So right now, all 50 states take medical exemptions to vaccines, but there are probably now that don't take religious exemptions. And so according to the law, that is a violation of the free exercise clause because that is hostility to religion. Because ultimately, uh, allowing the medical exemptions is going to produce the same level of risk as a religious exemption. And so the Supreme Court would say to that, that's going to be a free exercise problem. What has the school's response been mm -hmm. to your arguments so far? So the school's response has been to, to say that, well, no, 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 we, we, we do actually allow these um, exemptions and then we're, we're going to take hers. But see, you know, we at First Liberty, we encounter this a lot, right? As soon as we blow something up or you shed light on something, then all of a sudden people shift positions. However, there, there's even more that needs to happen here, right? The school needs to explicitly clarify their policy so that no other student has to face this again. They don't have a hold on their account or anything like that. And they need to make it clear in their policy on their website that they, they do allow religious exemptions because right now they don't. And we don't want any officials who just decide that they want to reject a religious exemption because of how they're feeling that yeah. day can do it because it's not in the policy. Does the nature of the religious exemption matter? In, in other words, does it, do you have to explain to the school or explain to the court, this is my theological argument and it comes directly from this passage of scripture? Can it be like just a conviction? How much does it matter why you have a religious exemption? That's a great question. So the government can't, you know, delve into uh, necessarily why you believe what you believe. They can determine whether they think your belief is sincere and that's mm -hmm. pretty much it. Uh, so once you say, well, I have a, a sincere religious belief, and for Jackie, for example, well, I've never had vaccines in my life. I believe that I shouldn't be putting these toxins in my body. My body is a temple, and I believe, you know, God and Jesus will heal whatever's going on here, and I don't need to use vaccines. And second, I don't want to use vaccines that were used or tested using fetal, um, aborted fetal right. cells. Um, and those are valid religious exercise um, yeah. reasons. And other than that, the court can't delve and say, well, we don't agree that that's yeah. true, or we don't agree that that's really a problem. So, so the, the government is not in a position and should not be in a position to say those are valid beliefs and those are not valid that's beliefs. Right. The that's court right. just determines whether it's sincere. That's or right. That's it. And so once you're able yeah. to express, this is my sincere belief, uh, that's pretty much it. And the analysis just goes to, well, is the government now accepting other exemptions? Yeah. Well, if you're accepting the medical exemption, then you've got to accept the religious exemption too. Do you have any indication of how many students share her concern about this who might be wanting or seeking religious exemptions from vaccine requirements? Well, I'm not sure about that, you know, necessarily at UAB, uh, but the statistics I've read said that less than two and a half percent of kindergartners across the United States requested religious exemptions last year. That just shows you how narrow this really is and how few students really ask for this. Um, so it's not one of those things that people will argue that if you give it to one person, everybody's going to ask for this. That's that's yeah. simply not true. Do you think it's a fair concern? Because I don't know what the number. I think it's something less than 60% of adult Americans mm -hmm. to date have gotten the vaccine. Would we expect that 40% of college students might be looking for a way out? And would that be a problem if that were true? I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but the law doesn't take that into account. You know, the law takes into account whether the 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 law is allowed or the government is allowing other exemptions, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's 
there's really no sort of threshold there about how many people can have those exemptions. We got about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. How is this going to end? Well, I think it'll end with Jackie Gale, you know, being able to move forward with her religious exemption. And hopefully the school will go ahead and clarify that in their policy. And of course, First Liberty is here at firstliberty.org to make sure that anyone else who faces this problem can get some help from us. Keisha, appreciate it very much. And in, in all that you and First Liberty do, you really are heroes for Americans who care about religious freedom. And we will be back after the break. What percentage of millennials don't know, don't care, or don't believe that there is a God? That's what we're going to talk about after the break with George Barna. Big survey. You want to hear the details. Stay with us when we come back right after the break. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home in for Tony today. Glad that you are with us. As highlighted in a new report released just last week, our nation is undergoing a seismic worldview shift driven by younger Americans, especially millennials who are far more likely to be among the don'ts, meaning they don't know, don't believe, or don't care whether God exists. In fact, 43% in a recent survey said they don't know, don't care, or don't believe whether God exists. Well, with me now to talk about the findings of the report, which is the third installment of the American Worldview Inventory 2021, is George Barna, Director of Research at Arizona Christian University. George, 
Welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you. Well, glad to have you. Tell us what you think uh, are, are the biggest findings in this year's version of the study. Well, as you mentioned, I think this is the third report that we put out so far. There will be more coming. But uh, one of the things that we discovered is that in addition to only 6% of American adults having a biblical worldview, we then looked at the other 94% to figure out what they have. And one of the big observations coming out of that is that 88% of Americans don't have a particular worldview that they buy into. Instead, what they're doing is picking and choosing elements from a variety of worldviews, a little Marxism, a little secular humanism, a little postmodernism, a little nihilism, and so forth. They blend it all together into a customized worldview that really bears very little, if any, relationship to any known worldview. But the reason that they do that is because we as a nation don't think very deeply about things like worldview, about things like truth, about things like meaning and purpose and success and so forth. Basically, what's driving us is we want to be happy. We want to make sure that emotionally we feel stable and secure and like we're making progress. We're the person that we think we ought to be or that we want to be. And so we embrace elements of various worldviews that feed into that rather than looking for something that connotes truth, such as a biblical worldview. So that's, that's been a big issue that, that has emerged from the research, as well as the fact that probably the worldview that we're drawing from the most is something known as moralistic therapeutic deism, which is, in my point of view, and probably yours, Joseph, fake Christianity. It has some relationship to Christianity or to biblical truths, but it's not really biblical truths. And then, of course, in this current report, what we find is that generationally speaking, we've been moving in the wrong direction for many years, but millennials are really bumping it up a few notches, taking us to a place where many of us have been praying that America would never get to. But now the war is really on. We can see what it is that we're up against. George, would you say that this combination of worldviews that you have you have discovered, is that really just what postmodernism is? No, I, I think there are elements of postmodernism in what Americans believe in terms of the narrative that they're putting together uh, in, in terms of postmodernism as well as other worldviews saying there is no absolute moral truth that you need to pay attention to or that you need to live in accordance with. So postmodernism is definitely in the mix. I wouldn't say that postmodernism as a worldview is dominant. In fact, we looked at that in the research and found that only about 2% of Americans could accurately be described as people who are following the postmodern point of view in various, if not all, dimensions of their life. Your study also found some, made some disturbing findings, concerning findings about millennials that it discovered not only uh, increased lack of belief, but really apathy toward belief in general. Where do you think this is coming from? Well, again, a, a lot of these different worldviews, whether it's secular humanism, which says, oh, you know, just follow the science or 
uh, you know, Eastern mysticism, look inside yourself for the truth, feel good. Uh, the, these and other worldviews, I think, have been driving them away from any kind of a study of beliefs, any kind of a coherent and comprehensive approach to beliefs that make sense. And frankly, I think part of it is a revulsion over what they've seen represented as Christianity in America. A lot of them are disenchanted with their experiences at churches or their experiences with Christians. And so they've thrown out the faith itself based on some of the beliefs and behaviors that they've experienced at the hands of either churches or individual believers. One final question, got about a minute left. What do you think is the result of this trend if it continues in this direction for our country? Well, what we know is that millennials want a nation where there's going to be bigger and more powerful government, where policies are going to be more flexible and pliable, where uh, Christianity, Christian churches are not going to have any kind of tax breaks or land use exemptions, no kind of benefits that they get, uh, and a place where they want to see the family redefined, one that is not necessarily the traditional family, where you've got marriage and children. They're much more interested in sexual freedom, in relational independence. Uh, so not getting married, living with people, not having children is part of the future that they want to see. Yeah. And I think that is what we are seeing. George, we're definitely going to need to follow up with you on this as we get this information because it does make such a difference. And I also want to have you back, maybe have you play those guitars behind you sometime. I think everybody <laughs> would enjoy that very, very much. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Joseph. And coming up next, we are going to talk about whether it's wrong for Christians to judge with David Clausen, thinking biblically about judgment. Stay get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history. And it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, 
anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org equalityact. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting for Tony today. Every week at the Family Research Council on Wednesday, we have what's called Worldview Wednesday, where we take a cultural issue and we evaluate it from a biblical worldview perspective. And today, the topic we chose was judging. Is it wrong to judge? Is judging unbiblical? That's the topic that we are going to discuss with David Klosser, David Clausen, excuse me, who is the Director of Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, welcome back. Hey, well, uh, thanks for having me on, Joseph. Always a great time. Well, I'm, I'm sorry we can't be in the same room today, but it's good to have the conversation anyway. Now, David, I mean, I'm going to commend our, our audience here uh, quickly to frc.org slash blog if you want to see the written version of this conversation, which is going to help uh, propel what we're talking about today. But the reason... And it's an article I wrote, and again, at frc.org slash blog, thinking biblically about judging. Now, David, the reason why I think this is important, and I think everybody watching this who uh, is within the, any, spends any time in the church and also spends any time in, uh, in government or politics or policy, they will be familiar with the, uh, I don't know if it's a slogan, if it's an argument, if it's an accusation, stop judging people. Why do you think we hear that so often? Yeah, it's a great question. You're right, Joseph. We hear it all the time. People who might not know anything about Christianity, they might not have ever picked up a Bible in their lives, uh, know the saying that you find in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 1, uh, judge not, lest ye be judged. And I think it's one, probably the non-believer's favorite verse because it seems to give license to the fact that uh, if anyone tries to hold them accountable to a moral code, to hold them accountable for their actions, their behavior, their ideas, they can kind of turn around and say, well, the Bible says, judge not, lest ye be judged. And it's almost a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card. I think that, that might even be the language you used in the blog this week uh, for anyone who tries to hold them accountable or hold them to a moral standard. And, and so even people who don't have a biblical worldview, 
and it's interesting. You just interviewed uh, George Barna, who studied to show that 88 percent of Americans have what you could call a synchronistic worldview, uh, which means they kind of copy and paste bits and pieces of worldviews uh, that they like. So you, a little bit of secular humanism, a little bit of postmodernism, but they'll come to the Bible to grab Matthew 7, 1 uh, to use it for their own purposes. And I think there's some irony in that, because at least in my experience, the people who uh, love Matthew 7, 1 the most are generally disinterested in anything else the Bible has to say about any other subject. And in fact, the reason they go to Matthew 7, 1 is because they believe that, apparently they believe that Matthew 7, 1 nullifies the rest of the moral law, because it's always brought up in the context of, well, Maybe that's not appropriate behavior. Maybe that's immoral. Maybe that's sin. Maybe that doesn't lead to human flourishing. And that judgment or that conclusion, that opinion, however you want to view that, and certainly they are, they are interpreting that as a judgment, right. is rebuked with Matthew 7, 1, saying, you, sh- you don't have the right to that opinion. It is wrong for you to make that moral judgment because Matthew 7, 1 tells you not to judge and you are judging. Is that an accurate interpretation in your view of Matthew 7? Not at all, Joseph. And, you know, I went to seminary, and the first class I took was uh, biblical hermeneutics, which is how do you interpret the Bible? And one of the first lessons you learn in hermeneutics, uh, this is just uh, very basic, is that uh, you have to look at the context uh, from which any passage appears. You know, the, the Bible's a big book, 66 books, uh, uh, Old and New Testament. And, you know, you could pick out any sentence, any phrase, and kind of interpret it to mean anything you want it to mean. And so just we need to approach any passage of Scripture and say, what is the context? What is the intent of the author? And, and when you come to Matthew 7, that is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus preached that spans Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And when you get into Matthew 7, Jesus is uh, providing instruction, he's providing advice, and he's specifically going after people who might be uh, very self-righteous. And he, he's warning them right there in verse 1, and you, have to, and you, you keep reading it, but in verse Verse 1, judge not least you be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce on others, so will you be judged. And so I, I have a quote here actually from John MacArthur, I think, explains this really well. He says, and this is really important, he said that Jesus does not call for men to cease to be examining and discerning, but to renounce the presumptuous temptation to try and be God. And I think that's what a lot of people who use this verse, they'll say, you can't judge me by quoting Matthew 7, 1. What they're doing is they're putting their views, their opinions, their convictions, their interpretation of life in an authoritative place so you can't judge them. And so again, the way this verse is usually used is not what Jesus intended when he gave this sermon. One of my favorite uh anecdotes about the importance of context. I grew up on the coast of Washington, about 20 miles from an actual rainforest. My parents' yard would get 100 inches of rain a year. When I read the verse, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, I actually thought that was a punishment because, you know, it's like, well, where I'm from, I'm tired of the rain. I don't want any more rain. Bad things happen to everybody. That was literally, from my framework, how I read that passage. And then, you know, come to realize the Eastern mind viewed rain very differently because Mm. the people who lived, who would have been the audience for that verse, they valued rain. It was important to them. It was a scarce resource, in fact. So it actually had the opposite meaning of how I read it just because I grew up in a rainforest and they grew up in a a desert. 
So yes, context matters and understanding, and you can't just take specific words and apply them to yourself. You have to try to understand what the author intended and what the audience who would have heard it, uh, how they would have heard that. Now, on this question of judgment, is it possible to live a judgment-free life? Well, I, I don't think so, Joseph. You and I, we, we are constantly making moral judgments uh, every moment, every day. We we have to, to to realize some things are right, some things are wrong. Uh, and so, no, we, we're, we're constantly making moral judgments. And I think that's how it's supposed to be. The Bible, uh, and again, you mentioned this in, in the article on Wednesday, you have a whole book of the Bible and the book of Proverbs uh, that is dedicated to cultivating wisdom. What is wisdom? It is rightly applied knowledge. And so as Christians, we are constantly having to, to make decisions, uh, to make moral pronouncements. Uh, and and that's, that's key, Joseph, uh, if I may make this point. Uh, there's a difference between self-righteous judgment, uh, which is what Jesus addresses in these verses, versus making moral judgments based on God's revealed moral law. Uh, we're not supposed to make self-righteous judgments that puts us in a position that is only uh, reserved for God alone, but we're absolutely to make moral judgments. And you see the author of Scripture doing that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You make a good point, and I think another way that we, we can properly understand this, the limitations on judgment, is that it is not your and my place to judge the state of someone else's soul. Hmm. And I think in a lot of political conversations, we, we see uh, within the church, we see people who have a different conclusion than we do. And we begin to question their faith. We begin to question their, their sincerity, uh, th- their belief in God, their commitment to truth, those kinds of things. And I think it is important because um, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. There are limits to what our knowledge can be. And that we don't know what's going on inside someone's heart. And it is not our place to determine whether someone is in right relationship with God, whether they are at the beginning of their journey of sanctification and they got a long road to go, or whether they're actually living in rebellion. And I think that's the challenge is, is, is I can look at a, a piece of information or a situation and I can reach one conclusion and you might reach another one. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're not both trying to uh, find out what is true. Now, I may one day come to realize you were correct and you were closer to God than I was in that situation. Uh, But God has mercy for that. So it would not be appropriate for us to say, well, because you disagree with me on X issue, therefore you don't actually love Jesus. And so that is in a way that we can't, we are not in a position to judge people's souls. That's something only God can do. But on the issue of, of, of judgment and whether or not, um, what would it look like if the world stopped making moral judgments? Well, it would look like it would be anarchy. It would be absolutely chaos if we just had anything goes, there's no moral judgments. Uh, to your previous point, Joseph, you, I think you just made a significant point that deserves to be underscored. You and I uh, do not have the vantage point that God does. Uh, we do not know what's in people's souls. However, uh, in the same chapter of the Bible that we're talking about, Matthew 7, uh, he does give advice. Because remember, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount to a big group of people, and there would have been Pharisees, there would have been Sadducees, there would have been religious leaders uh, who were very self-righteous, who were leading the people astray. And he did look 
he might have even directed this to the religious leaders. We know they would have been there. Uh, but he did say in Matthew 7, verse 15, to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And in verse 16, he said, you will know them by their fruit. And so again, when it comes to making moral judgments, uh, you can and I can look at people's lives. Uh, we can look at people who, who are our friends, who are our family. And in one sense, we can make a moral judgment. Now, only God knows the state of one's heart. Only God knows uh, when if someone is, has repented of their sin and turned in faith to Christ. Uh, but we can make moral judgments, and especially within the church, we are supposed to make moral judgments. We are called, uh, we, are, we are told to call people to repentance. Uh, I read through First uh, Corinthians. I just finished reading through that in my uh, daily quiet time. And oh my goodness, Paul goes after uh, the believers who are in sin. He calls them to account. He says that there's one situation of such uh, gross uh, immorality that the church needs to throw him out. And so Paul absolutely encourages us uh, believers to make moral judgments based on not not our opinions, Joseph, but based on the revealed word of God. Where is God's will revealed to us? It's revealed to us in his word. And so, again, to, to the question you just asked me, if we weren't making moral judgments, the world would be chaotic. There'd be anarchy. Uh, but as believers, we know that we are, we are supposed to make moral judgments according to the uh, revealed word of God in his word. I want to read a couple other passages that I think are are relevant to this. Um, James chapter 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That can't be, you can't bring someone back from their wanderings if you haven't assessed, judged that they are in fact wandering and need to be brought back. 2 Timothy 3.16 is is a verse well known to any apologist. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The, The whole process of discipleship involves making judgments about what is right, what is appropriate, what is healthy, what is unhealthy, and making sure that we encourage each other, that we encourage ourselves to do the right thing because the very nature of sin, uh, the existence of sin is proof that we often do the wrong thing. So why, David, is Matthew 7, 1 not um, one of those examples of the Bible contradicting itself? If we have the Ten Commandments and all these places where we're told to judge is Matthew 7, 1 just an example of the fact that the Bible's contradictory and you can't trust anything it has to say? No, no it's not, Joseph. In the verse you just read, uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen, where it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And what that means is that Every word of Scripture across the canon is God's word. It's inspired. It's authoritative. And so that's why we need to have our hermeneutical tools uh, to, to realize you have to, to, to read the Scripture in context. And I think just even uh, Matthew 7, 1, we're helped by verse 2, where it says, yeah, it, verse 1 says, Judge not, lest you be judged. But then verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, 
it will be measured to you. And then, and then you read on, and there's encouragement actually to judge in, in that uh, through uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. But, but the point that Jesus is making is that although that I'm encouraging you to, to make moral judgments, when you make those judgments, uh, it needs to be coming from a spirit of humility, uh, recognizing uh, that I might not have all of my stuff together, uh, but I'm going to to encourage you, brother or sister, uh, to to make sure that you are right with God. But it, what does the verse say? It says to take out the log from your own eye uh, before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. So what Jesus is saying in context is that all of us need to take our our opinions, our beliefs, our viewpoints captive to God's word to submit that to Him, and then in a spirit of humility, in a spirit a spirit of love and care and compassion for our brother or sister. Uh, to point them to God's word and to point them to truth. But context is key. Yeah, you elaborated it on there a little bit, but we've got about a minute left. What is the right attitude? If we are supposed to make moral judgments, or if we are supposed to keep ourselves and others from doing the wrong thing, what is the right attitude that we should have when we make those judgments of, of what the world around us is doing? Don't be presumptuous. Uh, be humble. Uh, be loving. Uh, look out for others. Uh, put others before yourself. This is the golden r- rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we make these moral judgments, it's for uh, not for our, our own good, not to, to have a, a spot of moral superiority. It's out of love and concern for our brother and sister. That needs to be the spirit and the heart behind any kind of moral judgment that we make. And I think that's exactly right. We we talked about the issue of church discipline as well, that when we make these judgments, it's totally different if we're doing it out of concern for them than if we are doing it out of spite or anger or fear or hatred. And what our heart is feeling in those moments will certainly be reflected in the way we communicate those things and in the judgments that we make. David Clausen, as always, Greatly appreciate your time and joining us. Look forward to talking again next week. Thank you, Joseph. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that this has been a blessing to you, that as you go through your weekend and you watch the news, as you watch your children and your friends communicate online, be careful in the way you judge. Understand that the standard you apply to other people is also going to be applied to you. Do you want that to be the case or not? Keep that in mind. Hope that this has blessed you. We have been blessed by your presence. We look forward to talking to you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.